Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, if you have a Bible, get it out. Um, If you've used your phone, go ahead and turn that on. James chapter 4. If you are not with, if you are without a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the chair rack underneath the chair nearby. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we want that to be our gift to you. Take that home. That is yours to keep. It'll be page 951 in that particular copy. But let's get our eyes on the text this morning. We're super excited to dive into James chapter 4. And I'll meet you there in just a moment. I want to read a verse to you and then provide you a biblical illustration, which there will be lots of those today, that will help us set up the passage that we're about to study. The Bible says in Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, and we'll stop right there. So a trespass is another word for sin, for a violation, for stepping over the line. When you trespass on someone's property, it is because you have crossed a line that you should not have crossed. And so in Genesis chapter number three, God has set this line and Adam and Eve cross that line. The consequence for that sin, for that trespass, is that from that point on, sin is now ingrained in the very nature and the very fabric of who we are as human beings. Death as a consequence is now a curse that all of us experience and condemnation is our natural sentencing. And so here's what Paul says. The law came in to increase the trespass. And so when the Mosaic law, which if you're unfamiliar with that term, you might be more familiar with the Ten Commandments. Now there are over 600 of them, but we are most most familiar with 10 of them. And so when he's talking about the law, he's talking about that Mosaic law, those 10 commandments. So when the Mosaic law entered, it revealed that we were, that humankind was in trouble because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So in Exodus, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and if you're familiar with the story, he sees this crazy scene, who crazy and wicked and depraved worship to a makeshift God, this golden calf. And so now Moses begins to read the law that was inscribed by the very hand of God on the tablets of stone that he now holds, and here's what he says. Here's what God writes. I am... I am the Lord your God. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Whoops. So then, he, with the very first commandment, it reveals that I'm wrong and the level of the trespass increases. With each commandment, the trespass increases more and more. And then he says, no graven images or idols. Okay, now we're 0 for 2. And then he says, don't lie and don't steal and don't covet. And with each one, the level of guilt before the law increases because I look at my life and God says, don't do these things. And I have done all of those things. And so now the level of guilt increases, the weight of the trespass increases, the burden of having crossed a line that I should not have crossed, it gets heavier and heavier. And so then Paul's word, superintended by the Spirit of God, says, now when the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
So regardless of how dark the sin is in your life, grace is brighter all the more. The good news of the gospel is that grace has and grace does and grace always will abound all the more over your sin, over my shame, over my guilt, over our circumstances and over my failures that when the light of the grace of God is shined in us and over us and through us, then sin is triumphed over. That is the good news of God's grace. The unmerited, undeserved and unearned kindness and favor of God. That's his grace. So now let's get our eyes on the text. James chapter 4, verse number 7 is where we will pick up. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? to judge your neighbor. Well, here at City Point Church, we believe in the authority of God's word, inspired by him, superintended by his spirit, preserved by him for us today. We have not gathered for a TED Talk. We have not gathered for a motivational moment. We take the word of God every week, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, and we preach it. And we unapologetically do that. And so each week we present a big idea that sits over the top of each paragraph. It acts as a theme in and a guide throughout the text. And so each week John has come up with a big idea that gives us a key to practically unlock the text as we walk through it. But sometimes God says, let me just give you the big idea for you. Let me just give it to you right in the text. Let me tell you what the big idea that sits over this paragraph is. And we find that big idea in verse 6 which is something we studied last week, but it is the first five words of verse number six, which leads us to the big idea that sits over this paragraph, but he gives more grace. That is the big idea that we will unpack this morning. And so Paul says the grace, the unmerited, undeserved, and unearned kindness and favor of God increases and abounds all the more over our sin and our guilt and our shame and our failures and our circumstances. And then James says, if you were with us last week, after lovingly ripping into us about our friendship with the world in verses 1 through 5, that God gives more grace. And so James writes this years before Paul would write his letter to the church in Rome, and they convey the same thought, that God is infinitely rich in grace and he loves to give it. Grace is not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can deserve. So why God gives more grace actually has nothing to do with you or me. Why God does that has nothing to do with you or me. So the question is not why does God give more grace, and the question is also not how does God give more grace. Because I think if we were to go around the room, time would fail us to talk about how God has shown up in your life and given you grace. He's given you daily grace when you've needed it. He's given you sudden grace when you've needed it. He's given you overwhelming grace when you've needed it. And so we can talk about the instances when God gives you more grace, but the reality is the question that we need to sit in this morning is, 
because he gives more grace, how should I respond? What should my response be to God giving us, giving me more grace? And we're going to look today at four clear responses to God giving more grace. And here's how we'll unpack it this morning. Because he gives more grace, I respond by, number one, submitting completely under his authority. I respond by submitting completely under his authority. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so this is it. This is where it starts, right? There's a great contrast that sets for, that's set forward in verse number 6 that really helps to serve and unpack verse number 7. The reality that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble Lucifer was expelled from heaven because of pride, Isaiah 14 says. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for pride, Ezekiel 16 tells us. Six things the Lord hates, and pride is very first on that list, according to Proverbs 6. This immense grace that God gives and gives more of will not come to those that are filled with pride. It is for the humble. This is a diametrically opposed stances of grace and pride. They are eternal enemies. Humility does not earn us this grace. What it does, what James is saying, is that humility puts us in a position, it postures us to be ready to receive God's grace. And so in verse number seven, it, that's really the only place that we can start in our logic in response to this grace being offered to the humble. He says, submit completely under his authority. Submitting to God is not a regrettable necessity. Submitting to God is not something that we do begrudgingly because he's some vicious tyrant. Our God is a good and a gracious king. He is kind. He is just. He is merciful. He is righteous. He is sovereign over all matters and details. He is faithful. He is worthy. We are submitting completely to him as a loving and a caring father. Can we just sit in that for a moment, right? What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good things to those who ask him? What does he say in Romans 8? He says, and he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely or graciously give us all things? We submit to him as a loving and a caring father who will not leave you without that which you truly need. But let's take it a step further. We don't submit to him because he gives us everything we need. We submit to him because his rule and his reign is right for us. God's rule and his reign is right for us. And I know we live in a society in a day and age when we say, I want to be my own Boss, I want to be the, the, the captain of my own ship. But God's rule and reign, it's right for us. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're good for us. God is so kind. His ultimate end is his glory. And we say it here often. God's glory is not something that he would not have if you do not give it to him. It is something that he possesses in earnest, in fullness, and in perpetuity. But the kindness of our God is not in that he always gets glory, though he does. It's that in him getting the glory, you and I get the good. In the book of Exodus, Moses goes to the Pharaoh. And here's what he says. Yahweh has told me to tell you to let my people go. God tells Moses that the Pharaoh, however, is going to say no. He's going to harden his heart. 
This is so that my glory would be shown. And so plague after plague after plague, God's glory is on display in the bringing of the plague and the removing of the plague. And finally, as the Israelites leave, the Bible says that they left with full bags and a high hand celebrating God for all that he had done. God got the glory and the Israelites got the good. Now tell me another person, another lesser God, another king who does what our God does. You see, when I desire glory for myself, you know who benefits from that? Me. But when God gets the glory in an overabundance of his grace and his kindness toward us, we get the good. So we submit to him and we submit completely under his authority saying, God, you are in control. You are good and gracious. You are loving and caring. Your rule and reign is right. But if I'm going to submit completely to one, that means I have to resist all others, which is what he says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. As followers of Jesus, we face a very real enemy. From the beginning, Satan has been contradicting the word of God and the worthiness of God, and he does that, and he attempts to intimidate us. 1 Peter 5, verse number 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You see, lions only roar for one reason. It is for intimidation. It is to let somebody know that a predator is nearby, that there is a threat to them. And then he does that. He he attempts to intimidate us, but he also contorts the word to deceive us. In Genesis chapter 3, that's exactly what happened in the garden. He contorts the word of God to deceive us. Sure, God said that. He said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Sure, God said that, yes. But did he really mean it? Like, did he really mean, surely you won't die. Surely Eve and Adam, surely God's not going to kill you for eating this fruit. And what he's doing is he's contorting the word to deceive us. But when we resist, we are combating deception and intimidation at the source. Resist here, it's a compound word that means to stand against. It's very similar to the way that God opposes the proud in verse number 6. And then it, 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 listen to this language that Paul uses in Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. It's combat language that you may be able to withstand, to stand against in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. But let's sit on an important truth that rests within the overarching narrative of Scripture that Satan is a conquered foe. He is not ultimately going to get the upper hand. He has lost and he knows it right? This is not an enemy that might sneak out a win in the final moments. There is no buzzer beater. There is no sequel. There is no alternate ending. There's no bonus footage. He is conquered and defeated once and for all. So then the question arises, why do I need to resist an enemy who has already been conquered? And the reality is because his end is written, but he's not there yet. The end is already written and he knows it, but he's not there yet. So he's going to accuse, and he's going to oppose, and he's going to assault the people of God, and he's not going to stop. Your enemy is not going to give up. So resist. And when James says resist, he says resist and keep on resisting. In Genesis chapter 39, there's this story that's told of Joseph who's in, the Potiphar's, who's in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife is seducing Joseph to be immoral with her. 
And so the Bible tells us that Potiphar's wife seduced Joseph day after day, and every single time Joseph would refuse, and every single time, every single day, she would tempt him, and every single day he would refuse, because just like that, our enemy's not going to give up. He's not going to just throw up his hands and say, they said, they said no once, they must be done. He doesn't care what it is. He'll be back. A little disagreement with my spouse, a little contention with your children, a little slight with a friend that cuts down and goes unforgiven and strife has been stirred up and now you're bitter. Maybe a little judgmental comment about another brother or sister in church. He doesn't care how he gets you. It doesn't matter to him. He's just going to keep trying. So resist and keep on resisting on the assurance, our eyes on the text in verse 7, on the assurance of this very promise that he will flee from you. It does not say he'll forget about you. It says he'll flee from you. And so as we submit to God and submit to his authority and we resist the devil and keep on resisting, every single time he'll flee. Every single time he'll leave on the authority of God, on the authority of his word. Every single time he'll leave, but he will always be back. He will always try again. So because God gives more grace, I submit completely under his authority. But number two, because he gives more grace, I respond by pursuing passionately after his presence. Look at verse number eight. The beginning of verse number eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now this is an important response. It follows as both an invitation and a promise. Submitting and resisting are for naught. They are for nothing if there is no drawing near to God. We need to long for his presence. You and I need to pursue God. Now hear me. This is not first pursuit. Here's what I mean by that. God is the pursuer for your salvation. God is the pursuer for your heart. It is by his grace alone that you and I have been saved, not your own doing, so that no one may boast. God passionately pursues people for salvation. His pursuit led him to send his one and only son to die a criminal's death on the cross to pay a a debt that we deserved, a deserved penalty that we had earned. He died in our place. His pursuit led him to do that while we were still distant and estranged and alienated from God. In his pursuit, in his first pursuit of us, he came after us and died for our sins. This is not that type of pursuit that James is talking about. This is not first pursuit. This is familial pursuit. Here, As his child, we would long to be close to him. I don't have it in me on my own, apart from him, to draw near to him. It is only because we have been adopted into his family as a son or a daughter that we can draw near to God. There's a story that's told of Tad Lincoln, the youngest of Abraham Lincoln's children, And the story is told that after Lincoln had been inaugurated in 1861, that he was holding a cabinet meeting, and his son, Tad, who was around eight or nine at the time, came bursting in from outside, came running through the house, and burst through the door, interrupting the meeting. And so all the other cabinet members around were in shock and awe and so offended that this little boy had just interrupted this meeting. And when they looked to President Lincoln to correct him on the spot, He looked at his son and he said, this is my son 
And he is welcome here any time he likes. This is what it means to pursue God, that you and I, like Tad Lincoln, on the basis of being God's son or his daughter, would pursue him, that you would come boldly, that you would come confidently, that you would come caring about one thing, him. Draw near to God. This is an imperative invitation. Draw near to him in worship. Draw near to him in prayer. Draw near to him in his word. Draw near to him by seeking wise and godly counsel. Draw near to him in the silence of your life. Draw near to him in the solitude of your life. In every triumph, draw near to him. In every trial, draw near to him. In the confusing, draw near to God. In the chaos, draw near to God. When the storm is there, abide with him. In the stillness, abide with him. Want nothing more than his presence. Want nothing less than his presence. Want nothing else than his presence draw near to God this is so vital my friends because we could not always draw near to God like we do now in the book of Exodus chapter 3 Moses is on the far side of the desert he is 40 years removed from his life of luxury and ease as Egypt's adopted son And he meets God in a supernatural way in a burning bush. And here's what God says. If you're familiar, you know. Here's what he says. Stop. Take off your shoes. Don't come any closer as you are. For the place that you stand is holy ground. Years later and for centuries in the tabernacle and then in the temple, the holiest of all, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the very presence of God where his presence dwelt with his people. It was separated by a veil. Only one person could go behind that veil one time a year. For us, for you and me, we could not draw near to God. But under the new covenant, that veil has been torn from top to bottom by the atoning death of Christ as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. That way that was once blocked off to us has now become open. That barrier to us drawing near to God is now done away with. That way into the very presence of God that was once shrouded by rules and regulations and restrictions and laws, it's now been saturated by the very blood of Jesus Christ. And so that by faith in his finished work on the cross and the power of that blood, we can now come close. Hear me, because we can, now we must. We must pursue God. We must draw near to him because he gives more grace. I respond by pursuing passionately after his presence. Number three, Because he gives more grace, I respond by relating rightly to my sin. And the weight that we sat in last week, if you were here in that first paragraph of chapter 4, like, be ready for that again. That's where we're about to go now. So there's a little warning for you. It's just going to be a little heavy, but this is God's words for us today. Chapter 4, verse number 8, here's what it says. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Then he says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As we sang about just a moment ago, our God is holy. He is distinctly other and sinlessly perfect. Because he is holy, drawing near to him, in passionate pursuit of him, 
is going to do something for you and me. It's going to do something for us. And while it might be good for you, it will not feel good to you at first. Now, I don't, want you, I don't want to lose you, and I don't want to have you misunderstand me being in an abiding and intimate relationship with Jesus. It is the most amazing thing that you or I could ever experience in our lives. It is the primary call that sits over the top of the life of each and every one of us who would be a follower of Jesus, that intimacy and abiding with Christ would be our primary focus. But God is unchanging. God is unchanging in his character. God is unmovable in his person. So the need to draw near to him happens not because he has moved. It is because we have. Why do we need to draw near to God? God hasn't moved. It's because we've moved. It's because we've strayed away from him. And so when James exhorts us to draw near to God, the inherent result of that for you and I is that we see who we are as unworthy and unholy sinners. As we draw near to God and pursue him, that's what we see. In Isaiah chapter number 6, Isaiah, who's a prophet of God to Israel, has this vision of God sitting on his throne, high and lifted up with angels surrounding, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so Isaiah, in that moment of seeing God lifted up as holy, here's what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am undone. But for five chapters leading up to chapter 6, Isaiah has been pronouncing judgments and woes on the people of Israel for not living like God, for not being like him, for not doing what they were supposed to do. And now Isaiah sees God for who he is. And as he gets closer to God and sees God for being holy, he sees himself as being unholy. And when you and I get closer to God, we realize how holy he is. Not when you and I get closer to church. Not when you and I get closer to life group. Not when you and I get closer to studies. When you and I get closer to God, we see how holy he is and how unholy we are. The famous songwriter of the hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. Drawing near to God means that his Holy Spirit, indwelling every believer, is going to bring conviction of sin. This part of his ministry in our lives to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment that Jesus says in John 16, that's what the Spirit does. And what James is about to drill down on here is our response to that conviction. As we pursue passionately after his presence, we see that God is holy and we are not. It leads us to respond with repentance. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is an admonition. This is a reproof. The word sinners carries the idea of not being free from the very presence of our sin. We are not free from the presence of sin. It exists in our world. And so that includes all of us. So James is talking to everybody here. Not being free from the presence of sin. He's not saying, when he calls us, you sinners, he's not saying, you need to get this because I've already got this. 
You see, this platform, it's for viewing. It's not for value. It's not because we don't struggle. It's not because we have this life on lockdown. You see, it's important that we understand that because we are not free from sin, that we need to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts because these are God's words through the human author of James. So God is saying, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. The things that you do, your actions. And he says, purify your heart. That's your center, your mind, your will, your emotions, your character. You double-minded is what, what he says next. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Which seems really harsh, kind of unfair. This is a word that James has already used earlier in this book. In chapter 1 and verse number 8, here's what he says. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So he's saying, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you that think that you can have it both ways, because you can't. And this is where it gets rough. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, because what does Scripture say? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts because no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts because friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts because no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Are you catching the tone and the tenor of what James is saying and the weight that we have to sit in? Be cleaned and purified because you and I cannot have it both ways. You cannot divide your interest and your devotion and your affections between God and anything else. And that might mean closing the door and walking away from a relationship if it's pulling you away from Christ. That might mean changing some things on your devices if it is facilitating sinful behavior. That might mean undoing and reordering some plans if it is upsetting your intimacy with Jesus. That means examining your motives and your intentions if they are not aligned with God's, because you can't have it both ways. Then in verse number nine, he just kind of keeps going. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Some translations say be afflicted or be miserable. Now this is important because James is not saying for you to beat yourself up. He's not saying wallow in pity and shame, but because of the greatness of God's grace and because he gives more of it, pity and guilt and shame, they are undone by his grace. Guilt says, I wish I hadn't done that. I regret the things that I did. I regret the things that I said. And this can be a good thing. But shame says, I will never be anything other than that. I will always be an angry person. I am forever an addict to that. I cannot become anything other than that. Now again, God's grace is greater than all of it. But what James is saying here is that we ought to be miserable over our sin. And how our sin has grieved the heart of a holy God. How our sin has recklessly flung in the face of his righteous character. Be wretched over that. 
Don't think that you can't do anything right. Don't think that you can never have victory over this. Friends, because that tomb is empty, which we celebrated a couple of weeks ago on Easter, and we celebrate every single week, because that tomb is empty and Jesus was victorious, you and I can be victorious over our sin. Don't think you'll always be this way. That's self-misery, and God is calling us to sanctified misery. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And we sit there and we go, okay, why would, like, I don't understand. And this is why, obviously, context is important in reading Scripture. Because if you were just to read this verse, you're sitting there wondering, why does God want me to be sad? Why does God want me to, like, be angry? Why does God want me to be mourning and not be joyful? But he's talking about something very specific When I was in seventh grade, I got kicked out of class for the very first time. Sorry, I was a bad kid. So now you know. Now you know my deepest, darkest secret. Um, And if you were with us in July, you remember that as a teacher, I had to kick somebody out of class. I told that story. I think that might have just been payback for when I was a student and I got kicked out of class. But anyway, when I was in seventh grade, I was in the back of class with my friends and we were just messing around. We were not paying attention. We were sitting in the back and we had like these drop ceilings and we would take our pencils and we would obviously go and sharpen them. We just throw them up in the ceiling, try to get them stuck. And we were just laughing and carrying on and having a good time. The teacher was teaching and she pointed at me and she said, Derek, get out. And so I got up and I got out. And at my school, when you got kicked out, you automatically got 10 demerits, which was just a a consequence that they had. And so, um, but I knew something really important in that moment, that at home, it was going to be very different. Um, So we had a rule. It was a rule from the time I was like four. Uh, Any trouble you get in at school will pale in comparison to the trouble you will be in at home. And so I knew what was coming, and that was not okay. And so when I told my dad that I had gotten kicked out of class, I'm like crying, I got kicked out of class. I'm so, like, I wasn't sorry for getting kicked out of class. Honestly, ultimately, I was just sorry for what was about to happen next. And so as I'm telling my dad this, like, I'm crying and weeping and just so broken up about it, not about what I had done, but just about the consequence that was to follow. And what God is saying here is that the same laughter and the same joy and the same rejoicing and revelry that you you had in your sin, turn it to mourning, turn it to gloom, turn it to sorrow, and have it over your sin. And man, that's, that's hard for us. In Joel chapter 2 and verse number 12, God passionately pleads with his covenant people of Israel. And he says, return to me with all of your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, rending garments was a cultural thing. It was an outward display of extreme emotion. And God says, have that in repentance, but not of your garments. Rend your hearts. Be broken over your sin. A pastor friend named Adam said, we too often don't relate rightly to sin. Because we relate lightly to it. 
We think little of our sin. We think it's no big deal. So we don't pursue confession of sin. We don't pursue accountability. We don't pursue making peace. We don't pursue restoration and reconciliation. We think, I I can handle it. It's fine. We can overcome it. We can forge our own victory. And let me just tell you from personal experience, we can't. And it's not one of those, well, if I can't, then you can't. We seriously and simply cannot do it. I need to relate rightly to my sin, that I see it for what it is, an affront to God's holy character. And I am broken about that. And I repent of it. I'm so sorry for it. It's not a show, it's not for attention. It's because I am sorry for my sin. And then when I relate rightly to my sin, what that drives me to is verse 10, which says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the posture of humility that enables me, right, right, and helps me to be ready to receive God's grace and more of it in verse number six it still needs to be present as I have related rightly to my sin in verse number 10. That humility still needs to be there. What did Jesus say in Luke 18 as he tells this story? He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. So one, the spiritual elite of the day, and one, a traitor to his nation and a thief. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. There's a start. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even, even God, like that guy over there. Like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector stood afar off. And he would not as much as lift his eyes toward heaven, but beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went home justified. This man went home declared righteous, made right with me, rather than the other one for. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Grace received in a posture of humility always, always lifts up, right? It's in this section that we find both the duty and the blessing of repentance, that you have to do it, and then this is what you get when you do it. But remember, I said it won't, it's going to be good for you, but it's not going to feel good to you. Do you know why? Because it's not going to feel good to you to go to your spouse and say, I've really messed up lately. It's not going to feel good to you to go to your accountability partner and say, I've not been truthful and I've struggled here. It's not going to feel good to you to go to your friends who think so highly of you, who think that you've got it all together because you've put on this show and you have to tell them that I've struggled in this area and you don't know about it, but I need to tell you because I want to be right with God because I want him to lift me up and God's not going to kick you when you're down. He's not going to say you messed up. That's it. You don't get anything else. You'll never be right. God reaches down and in his grace and in more of his grace, he says, I will lift you you up so that you can go and walk again so that you in being made right with him can walk in newness of life and joy and peace 
and to living a life following Jesus the way it's supposed to be. That's the point. But that only happens when you and I relate rightly to our sin. And I know it's hard. I know we might sit here and think, like, I, I don't want any of that. Man, if we want to be lifted up, we need it. And then number four, lastly, because he gives more grace, I respond by connecting lovingly with his people. Verse 11 and 12, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, getting right with God must result in getting and being right with other people. We cannot live our lives not right with others. You see, yes, we live our lives preeminently vertical, but we also live our lives horizontal. And so God says that if you want to be right with me, you also have to be right with others. You can't sit here and say, I'm all right with God. It's fine. It doesn't matter how I treat other people because God says that's just not true. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now that is a lot, and that is heavy and full, but God is saying that you cannot be at odds with your brother or sister and still be right with him. James has already brought down the hammer as it relates to our tongue in chapter 3. And he's here to circle back and double down again. Speaking evil, which is what he says not to do, it carries the idea of those that meet in corners and gather in small groups and pass along confidential information, which destroys the good name of those that are not there to defend themselves. It is incriminating talk. It is traducing talk. It is slander, and it is gossip. And then he gives some reasons why this is wrong. He says, number one, because it breaks the royal law. He says, the one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. So earlier in James chapter 2 and verse number 8, James talks about the royal law. It is this law of love, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we talk poorly about other people, we are breaking the law. Speech like that is void of and it lacks love. That's what God is saying. And then he says, it takes the right of judgment that only God possesses. This is the other reason why you can't do it. Because it breaks the royal law and it is only God's right to judge. Right? So he says, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. So he takes it a step further and he says, when you and I judge others, we are making ourselves the law. We have replaced the law of love with the law of me. If you replace the law of love with the law of me, you cannot be practicing love. You have exercised authority that isn't yours and said, love is wrong and I am right. Now, of course, in those moments, we aren't saying that out loud. In those moments, we mask it by saying, I'm just trying to help them. We mask it by saying, just think it would be better if, 
We mask it by saying, I just don't feel like you should. And much of this talk happens in secret. It happens behind closed doors and or it happens in our hearts. And so when we practice the law of me, we are saying of the law of love that it is too strict and it is too great a restraint to live by. I cannot love this person as they are. I cannot love unless it fits within my neat little box. I cannot accept them as an image bearer of God. I cannot love them in their differences. And this admonition is meant to uproot the harsh and oftentimes critical spirit that we have where we continually find fault with other people. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Job. How in the span of a day, he loses everything of his wealth, his family, and his health. And the book is chapter after chapter after chapter of mourning and grieving and questioning all of it like you and I do when we sit in our trials. Mourning and weeping and questioning, why, God, is this happening? And then he has three friends who show up. And they begin to pass judgment on Job. They begin to tell him, clearly God is upset with you for something, for some unconfessed sin, for some wickedness in your life that we can't quite put our finger on, but you did something wrong at some point in time. And so this is why God is mad at you and you're going through this. And they stand as a judge over Job's life, declaring him to be wrong for something. They spoke seeking to point out a fault in Job. This is the practice that James is wanting us to avoid. Finding faults, judging others on differences about indifferent things. When I judge by the law of me instead of the law of love because of someone's preferences or opinions. When I judge on the basis of race or culture or socioeconomic status or upbringing, when I judge on the basis of political affiliation or social influence, I am not, I cannot be practicing love. And what does Jesus say? By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So hear me clearly though. Ready? James is not saying. James is not saying that we affirm sin. James is not saying that we affirm sinful lifestyles. He's not saying that you give it a pass and I just love them in spite of that. That's not the point that James is making. He's not saying we don't call sin what it is. He's saying that in that, in calling out sin, in going to your brother or sister like Matthew 18 says, and going to them just between you and him or you and her, and going to them and saying, I see this in your life. This is becoming a problem. I'm just telling you this. When we do that, we do it in love, not in judgment. It doesn't mean you don't point out sin and say, I see this in your life and I think it's going to be a problem. I see you're struggling with this. I just want to let you know I want to walk through this with you. I want you to be restored and be made right. I want to see that. I'm not judging. I am loving. And what I am doing in that moment is I am lovingly pointing the other person to the judge. I don't judge. I don't pass judgment. I don't get that right. But when I go to you, when you go to somebody else and you say, this is, prob this is a problem in your life, you're not judging. It's in love 
you are pointing them to the judge, saying, let's get this right. Let's walk through this together. There's only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one person who has the final word on all things. There's only one who is sovereign over all things. Because remind me again whose sins you and I died for. Remind me again whose existence can be credited to us alone. Remind me who came bursting forth from the grave in glorious resurrection power never to die again. Remind me again who has all authority in heaven and in earth. Remind me again who rules and reigns as the rightful king of kings and the lord of lords for all of eternity. Can I tell you a secret between you and me? It's not you or me. It's Jesus. And so because that is true of him and not of us, he is the only one who gets to judge. So James closes this paragraph with an indignant rhetorical question. And it might seem harsh, but the Spirit of God kept it inscripturated for us so that it might, so it might be harsh, but it's not malicious. He says at the end of verse 12, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So in light of that reality, right, that it's Jesus that all of those things describe and are true of and so much more, because that is Jesus and not you or me, the question that James asks is, who are you to judge your neighbor? You say, well, that doesn't really seem indignant, but what we hear in the 21st century is, who do you think you are? Tell me you haven't heard that. Who do you think you are to judge me? Who do you think you are to tell me that I'm wrong? Who do you think you are to do this? I'm nobody, which is why I don't get to judge. God judges. So what I do is I love somebody and I walk them towards the judge and I let the judge do the work. And we just love. So I connect lovingly with his people because he gives more grace. That's how I have to respond. It's so important that we respond this way. And maybe you've been waiting for this moment that we often have in our services where it's been really heavy and really hard and you've sat in the weight of this and you're like, when are we going to have an opportunity to kind of like breathe again? To come up for air? Like, when are we just going to like, oh, okay, there's the good news that we got at the end of last week, right? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. James does not afford us that opportunity at the end of this paragraph. But it doesn't mean there isn't good news. It doesn't mean there isn't anything for you, which is why we do learning to live here. And when we learn, we don't learn just to learn. We learn so that we can live more like Christ and put into practice these things. And so in the spirit of this paragraph, normally we have three questions, but in the spirit of this paragraph, James gives us 10 things to do. But I will give you three. <laughs> so there's your good news. Here's three things that we need to do. Number one, receive his grace. If you are here today, you're saying, I don't know Jesus. I can't live out anything that you've just said because I don't have a relationship with him. I've heard about Christianity. I've heard about what it might mean to follow Jesus, but I'm just not sure. Or I reject that altogether. Somebody twisted my arm and told me I had to come today, but I don't know Jesus. He is pursuing you. He is pursuing you. He wants you. If he is pursuing you, I am urging you and begging you and pleading with you, receive his grace. 
Receive the goodness of God who paid for the penalty of your sin so that you could be made right with God, so that you could spend an eternity with Jesus, so that you could have an abiding relationship with him, receive his grace. But number two, respond to his grace, right? So this is different than receiving it because our four points today have been responses. So where do you need to respond to his grace? Respond to it. Saying, God, I'll submit to you. God, I'll pursue your presence, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. God, I'll relate rightly to my sin. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be a struggle. My sin is great, but your grace is greater and I'll start relating rightly to my sin. Or I'll love your people. I've passed judgment on people because of this, because of that, but I'll start loving your people. Respond to his grace. And lastly, rely on his grace. Rely on his grace every single day as you seek to live on mission, as you seek to be a witness for him. As college students, you go back home in a couple of weeks. As, as, as uh, adults, as you go and you go to your job and you are a father and a, a husband and as you are a wife or a mother, as an employee, rely on his grace so that you could live on mission. You need it. You can't be filled up with pride and say, I'll just do this and I've got this. And no, rely on his grace. You desperately need it. And in the times when you need more of it, he gives more of it. And so remain humble and rely on his grace and say, God, I always want to be in that posture, ready to receive your grace because I need it. Here's that big idea. But he gives more grace. It's simple. It's easy. But it takes some work on our part to get to that point where we can be ready to receive it. God, I want to be ready to receive your grace. So help me to respond in the right way for that. Can we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, as we sit in this moment and we examine our hearts as your Holy Spirit has done his work in our hearts and our lives, as your word continues to do its work in our hearts, bring us back to these moments. Lord, of submission to you and you alone is needed. May we do that. May that happen across this room right now where people are deciding to submit and choosing and leaning into your grace and responding to it by saying, I'll submit to God. The devil has been fighting. Spiritual warfare is there. It is everything that is fighting against me to walk with you, to give you my full allegiance, to follow you committed and fully. Help me to resist and keep on resisting. Lord, help us to pursue passionately after you. That we would want just you. Just who you are. Just you. Lord, help us to relate rightly to our sin. 
We are not perfect. We are not free from the presence of sin, but God, we need you. Where repentance is needed around this room and in our hearts, may that begin happening in this moment right now. And Lord, would we connect lovingly with others? Would we continue to love others? Not to judge, but to lovingly come aside, come alongside a brother or sister and say, let me point you to the judge. Let me point you to the one who actually can make things right. And let's walk through this together. And we'll thank you and trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.